Welcome, Melissa Nelson Baldwin to Hemp Barons. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, you, my dear, are coming to us from Kansas, where you have opened and already been in the hemp business for some time uh, as it relates to hemp extracts and, of course, cannabidiol or CBD. But you and your partners, Aaron and Richard Baldwin, have opened the first decortication or hemp fiber processing facility in the state of Kansas. And I simply cannot thank you enough. What brought you to hemp fiber, my dear? Um, we kind of have to start at the beginning, like a quick little rundown about who we are and, and what we do. So my background is in crop research. And then my husband and my brother-in-law are fourth generation farmers in this area. So we did our conventional crops of corn, wheat, soybeans, milo, but we were always looking for the, a, a niche crop. So for example, we grew tough grass because we had hay horse people out in Colorado that used it for hay. Well, we had a pivot that was had low water, so we couldn't put a full season corn on it. So we started looking for different options and then Kansas opened up the hemp side of things in 2019. And so, both Aaron and Richard brought the idea to me that we team up and we have South Bend Industrial Hemp and we do like a, the farm is Aaron and Richard, my performance crop research, and then we mesh our skills together and create South Bend Industrial Hemp. So our passion and why I said that is because our passion is large scale agriculture. Circle K Farming Partnership in Great Bend. Yes. And so we you know, we love feeding the world. We love producing agriculture on a large scale. And so we saw fiber and grain as really the market that we wanted to be in. But in 2019, it was pretty non-existent. So we put in CBD, uh, one for my research company, and two, because we understood that's kind of where the money was at that time before the market crashed. But we put in 80 acres of dry land hemp um, for fiber and grain. And we just wanted to learn about it. And so one of the big things that we do is really mitigate risk in this hemp industry, particularly in 2019 when we started, we really didn't know what to expect or really how to grow it uh, efficiently. Uh, so we put it in after a wheat crop. Uh, we harvested the wheat and then it was, that field was gonna go to fallow. So we put in fiber and grain and it was a no risk. You know, If you had no crop, we weren't gonna grow anything on that ground anyway. Uh, so we weren't really out anything except for the cost of the seed and our time. In 2020, we also did CBD, but again, we ups, we uh, dove in deeper to the fiber and grain. Uh, we thought we had an outlet in 2020 for our bales. Um, just like most things in the hemp industry, it fell through. Uh, so then we started punching the numbers and we were like, you know, why, why can't we do this? We see this as a bottleneck. Why not us? And and so here we are. Here you are. So you needed a rotation crop, something to add into the rotation, a niche crop, as you say. So that's something that Circle K Farming Partnership was was looking to do. Um, or I just now learned that Aaron and Baldwin, Aaron and Richard, one is your husband and one is your brother-in-law. Which one is your husband? Aaron is your husband. Richard is your is your brother-in-law. Um, and of course. As as you have well spoken, um, you know, the market for hemp CBD in terms of extract variety certainly has 
crashed. We speak about it all the time on, on this show. And of course, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with me or, or who I am in, in the hemp industry, but certainly uh, in the multiple trade associations that I deal with, um, you know, that is a, a constant topic. Having been in hemp for 30 years as an oil seed and fiber girl, of course, hemp extract varieties kind of blindsided us and, uh, and hit us like a ton of bricks starting around 2013 and then, and then moving on. Um, but certainly, uh, as much as we love hemp extract and, and love CBD and all of the cannabinoids and the many, many things that, and ways that they can improve our lives, it's the oil, seed, and fiber types that are going to provide economic stability for the farmer, that are really going to provide jobs and, and economic security, and certainly the environmental stability that we're looking for. Uh, in the promise of hemp. And, and as you know, in Kansas, uh, you also have Human Plant Solutions. And I've, I've interviewed S Sam Spolita there, who is, you know, making prosthetics and other things, some very innovative products there. But you are filling a tremendous need. I mean, talk about working in tandem and putting the, the cart before the horse or the chicken before the egg. And as I often say, we've been asking farmers to grow a crop for which there's very little infrastructure other than a saturated infrastructure for extraction. Um, and we're asking it in entrepreneurs and investors to invest in infrastructure for which there has been very little crop. But here we are, one foot in front of the other, working together. And you are such heroes and heroines there uh, in Kansas, filling that need in that entire region of the country. Now, and of course, in, in Kansas, in 2019 and 2020, my understanding is that, you know, just a, a, the vast majority, somewhere around 90% of all of the hemp grown was grown for extract. Uh, but now it sounds like you have contracted with some farmers to grow a thousand acres of hemp fiber this year. Is that true? That is true. Uh, between, we've got some up in Nebraska and some down in Oklahoma, because those really aren't that far of a drive for where we're located economically we would love them closer but they're they want to grow they feel comfortable growing the math works out economically for them to bring it to great bend and then we have a grower in missouri as well so we're in four states so fantastic and this is this is what i mean by working together and putting one foot in front of the other because ideally and in the future i don't think we're going to see of course that type of traveling thank goodness it is economically viable so that everyone working together is going to move this industry forward uh you at south bend industrial hemp and, and the far four farmers uh that you're working with are the four states um but in the future of course we'd love to see infrastructure processing and manufacturing within 50 to 100 square miles of every hemp biomass feedstock. This is what it is taking to get it done. So it sounds like there will be some uh, transportation of fiber hemp from one state into South Bend. My understanding is that that is going to be used for hemp textiles. Could you either correct me if I'm wrong about that? And if not, elaborate. Okay. Um I'm not going to say exclusively for textiles. Um, I would say we're actually venturing more of our farmers are going down the dual purpose avenue. Uh, so they're going to harvest much later than what the plant would need for textiles. Uh, so we are pursuing, well, not really, we're not really even pursuing. The markets that are coming to us are more the insulation, the hempcrete, the bioplastics, um, you know, more that avenue, more the construction grade type herd and things like that. Uh, a little bit of talks with paper mills, et cetera, but not so much textiles, more 
more other avenues. I read about the textiles in a um, newspaper, Hutch News, and that may be the uh, that may be the short name for it that had said textiles. And I certainly wondered about that just because it's difficult right now, of course, to to grow hemp uh, that is textile quality or, or class or category ready. Whereas, of course, as you well know, that the inner woody core, the textiles are from that outer bark. I'm mostly saying this for our listeners. I'm sure you're well aware. Uh, the, uh, the outer bark, the bast fiber, of course, is what we would use for textiles. Whereas that inner woody core, the herd or the shiv or shives, uh, as some call it, um, that is what, of course, we'd be using for aggregate, for construction materials and, uh, uh, and animal bedding and so many hundreds of other things, including biocomposites, of course. So that makes perfect sense um, that that is where the direction where you're heading. And I'm sure, as you know, in Holland and in other parts of the world, Europe in general, they sort of giggle at us that here in America, with our vast agricultural lands, which they do not have the luxury of in, in Europe, it's very precious agricultural growing land, um, that, uh, that we use it for these almost horticultural, individually cared for plants, about one plant every one and a half square meters when growing for extract. Whereas in Holland um, and, and other similar countries, they've got those dual cut combines where they're grabbing that stalk about eight inches off the ground. They're taking, stripping the flower off the top of the plant, um, but the, the plants are, are really sown for fiber, are sown very close together, and they're getting both of those purposes. Purposes, right? They're getting that great herd from the stock, and then they're extracting uh, cannabidiol and other cannabinoids from that flower. Now, of course, when we're using that dual purpose, generally, uh, the cannabinoid content of the flowers um, are generally much smaller. <clears throat> Three to four percent is, is really what I'm talking about is happening in, in Holland and others. So hoping that we'll get really innovative here and would love to hear any stories about uh, any innovations that some of the farmers that you're talking about um, will be doing. Are they going to be growing sort of um, close together plants or, or how, are, how are they going to be planting when you say dual purpose and what kind of cannabinoid content do you think? Uh, and I know we're, everything's a variety trial these, these days. Uh, do you think they'll be able to get out of that dual crop? So I think, and maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but when I talk dual purpose, I'm talking for grain, for seed, for more that avenue, not the cannabinoid. Most of our growers here in Kansas, they got pretty black, big black eyes from the cannabinoid market. They're not interested in pursuing that at all. But the, can you explain then so that we can all understand and speak this? That's part of what goes on with the with the hemp industries, right? Are different dictionaries. And we've got mm -hmm. all kinds of lexicons and, and terms and, and ASTM and APA and the U.S. Hemp Authority and all of us trying to standardize terms. So when I hear dual purpose or dual, dual type crops, um, generally we mean for two different purposes. And sometimes right. that's fiber and cannabinoids. Sometimes it's grain and cannabinoids. Um, sometimes it can be grain and fiber. Um, that's usually a little odd when that happens just because most processing equipment is for, for that long, strong stock is set up for a specific type of stock. So you tell me what it means for you. Okay. Um, so for our dual purpose, we're, we're growing for grain and then for the fiber or the stock when we're down there. And so 
we, and I think one thing that makes us a little different than other operations is we are really attacking this from a farmer's mindset, okay? If a farmer has to buy specialty equipment or they can't integrate this in their farming operation, they're not gonna do it. It has to fit. And so in 2020, we set a goal of only using equipment that we already had on the farm. Everything down to seed plates for our planter that we tried to put it in with. Uh, we did some drilling. We used our air seeder for that. When it came time to um, harvest, we used our Case IH combine with our draper head. So it's the same head that you harvest soybeans and wheat from. Raised that all the way up, came in, took the grain off, ran it through our combine, and then followed behind with a swather and laid it down and then let it ret and bailed it from there. So when we're talking dual purpose, we're talking grain and fiber. Beautiful. Love it when, love to hear that. Um, and then, and I, I think what is interesting to, to hear is that your equipment, and I know you use Formation Ag, love Formation Ag, and Corbett Hefner, I don't know if you got a chance to meet Corbett. He's so wonderful. Corbett's my bud. We talk all the time. Yeah, I bet he is. <laughs> I bet he is. So the varieties that you were planting then for your jewel crop, uh, grain, are, are varieties where the stock is going to be able to be processed through that equipment that you've got. Exactly. So, so for we're targeting, you know, 25 to 30 pounds per acre for seed um, going in the ground. If we, we do have some farmers that are, they, they are set up, I'll backtrack a little bit. When we work with these farmers that we're contracting, we are having the conversation of what equipment do you already have on your farm? You know, if you're already set up to drill, then let's drill it and let's go at a higher population. You know, there's this one guy, he specializes in hay. So he has a sickle bar mower. He has no desire to take it to grain because he doesn't have the equipment to use it. So we're going to alter our contracts a little bit with him and he's going to bring in and it helps with timing. You know, he's going to harvest first because he's not taking it to grain. And so that way it helps stagger out these acres that are coming into our facility. And it, it really works out well, but utilizing what the farmer already has on his farm is critical for success. And, and we could apply that to basically everything. Using what is local, using what you have is critical for success. The, the more barriers for entry that we place, the more difficult it's going to be for folks to enter into it. So, of course, that natural, almost permaculture type of working with existing systems um, is, is, of course, the name of the game. And I think, too, uh, that mo most of the time, so that we're clear, and I love to get these lessons out for the listeners, most of the time, traditionally, and I love that you are you and as as a crop scientist, so to speak, uh, you are using a, a traditional term. Dual crops or dual purpose traditionally has meant fiber and grain, of course. Then when extracts came around, uh, it became we could have tri-purpose or we could have dual purpose. Yeah, that's uh, what we call this tri-purpose. Exactly, uh, and so. 
But when I read in Hutch News that you're growing for fiber and that it's for textiles and so on and so forth, and you say dual purpose, I'm not thinking grain because I'm thinking fiber and leaves and not fiber and seeds because there was nothing about grain there. I am so thrilled uh, that you're moving into grain, obviously. I, I like to say, although I, I keep getting folks say, listen, it's not, it, it's not the most, the highest digestible form of protein, um, but I've, I've got some science that, to beg to differ on that, that it has definitely more digestible protein than soy. Well, yeah. Anyway. We've got like a, think in terms of cattle, you know, we work with the Hemp Feed Coalition. We have a backgrounding yard as well. So we, we feed out cattle and our nutritionist and stuff is looking at these COAs that we're sending in for our grain. And, you know, we need to see that move forward because in terms of scalability, we can't meet that demand. I mean, just, just for numbers, like we have a 5,000 head yard. And if we would supplement that and put it in for one cycle of cattle, which is there about 120 days, we would need 70,000 pounds just for that 70-day 70, 70 period. So now multiply that out because we run cattle 365. You know, that's a lot of grain that you need moving through. And that is a whole new avenue that just explodes once that gets through and, and gets approved. Absolutely. And in terms of, and, and you know, that first application went in, seed cake and meal, laying hand, doing it, HFC, Hemp Feed Coalition. Um, you know, I think from a protein perspective, ha having said that, though, just from the nutritional profile, if we're comparing, uh, you know, we, we, you can look at the COAs of what is in that seed, of course, for protein. The issue is that when we compare it with other forms of protein, the reality is that the hemp seed, of course, doesn't have any trypsin inhibitors in it. And that, that's not coming up in the COA, right? And trypsin inhibitors are what prevent our bodies from absorbing, or mammals' bodies from absorbing protein. It has nearly a full amino acid profile, of course, which is tremendous in terms of allowing bodies to metabolize protein. Um, and then finally, uh, generally speaking, and with hemp, we're always generally speaking, so many complexities, so many nuances, but generally speaking, um, you know, it's about 60, of the protein in the hemp seed, it's about 60% Ediston protein, which is a globular protein more easily metabolized by, by a mammal's body. So it is just such a dense, um, a densely nutritious uh, seed just on that aspect and don't even get us started on polyunsaturated poly, uh, essential fatty acids, etc., and minerals. It's, it's just amazing. And, and of course, as a co-owner of a hemp grain processing facility where uh, the seed cake is certainly piles up day after day because there's a great market, as you well know, for hemp oil, for hemp seed oil. And so those presses are always going. But what is the co-product? I never say byproduct of that oil. It's the seed cake. And because the hemp protein market uh, for humans... Um, it, although it has been recognized, generally recognized as safe, is not quite up there with the demand for hemp oil yet, that seed cake is just piling up in, in all of the processing facilities, and that's basically around the world. Um, so uh, it's just fantastic that you are working on these, product, on these projects with your own cattle. That's what I'm understanding. Is that right? We're not feeding it to our cattle because it's not legal, and most of ours is customer-fed, so they're moving on to the next part in the supply chain. Um, so 
No, not for any cattle that we're selling or anything like that. Um, we're staying within the law. I wouldn't expect you to be selling it, to, to feeding it to cattle that you're selling. But but it sounds like you had five five hundred heads. Yeah, it's you know it's just it's conversations that we're having because you have to start getting people to think about these. You know when you get these nutritionalists and you get these people running yards and. Like, for example, we have a yard here that has over 100,000 cattle. You know, they've got more power and they're not even that big. You know, Kansas is full of feed yards. And so if you can get the ear of some of these larger corporations that are known throughout the nation, like that's when you start getting funding and that's when you start getting backing and and that's really what the hemp industry needs. I mean, you are preaching to the choir, sister. You are preaching big ag. Please listen. If you don't listening now, you're going to be forced to listen because that's the way the climate's moving. That's the way the markets yeah. are moving. The climates are moving, and consumer demand is going to be moving that way too. So, you know, the education campaign uh, for nutrition and for uh, and for fiber, of course. Thanks very much to Dr. Bronner, who basically paid about a million dollars over the course of 10 years to do these massive Hemp History Week educational campaigns uh, that went into stores all over the United States. They started to get bigger and bigger, and I think the last one was just absolutely tremendous, something around 1,600 events during that week. And that's that's all we have really had is our own individual grassroots efforts and then some funding that has come in by philanthropists to sort of engage in these educational uh, opportunities up until the very uh, recent history where now we've just got a tremendous coalition building everyone from academia to, to private uh, industry to the nonprofits to governments and regulators. It's just wonderful to see everybody working together. Any strategic partnerships um, that you want to share with the audience of what you're working with, uh, of who you're working with at South Bend Industrial Hemp? Besides Formation Ag with our decorticator, we bootstrap this whole thing with our farm and what we do. And, you know, a big, we just mitigate risk with how much can you gamble? How much can we, how do we do this? And so our biggest partnership has been ourselves and leaning in on each other and it's been a learning process and definitely a learning or little growing pains, maybe a few more than a little. I was going to say, that's generous. Hempin' ain't easy. Yeah, hempin' ain't easy. <laughs> so, and I was wondering if, and in, in really more along that partnership, because what I see in most states, you know, is that uh, farmers are working with their Department of Ag and a land-grant university. Oh, yeah. Any, anything around that? So we work with the KDA. We're very transparent. Talk to Brand, Brand, or Braden Hoke a lot. Um, just keep him in the loop. I have really enjoyed since we've opened this processing facility, we're working a lot with our state fire marshal because that's who oversees the processing facilities. He's an amazing individual because he didn't come in. You know, he got dumped this whole hemp. And instead of like being really aggressive and coming, he came in with an open mind and he came to our facility and he just wanted to learn more about it because he didn't even know our industry existed. You know, all he thought was CBD, THC. And he looked at our equipment, went through our process, you know, we showed him everything and he was like, wow, like you really have nothing to do with the chemical side of this. And it's like, yes, that's exactly what we're trying to promote and show that this is, this is just like any other crop or at least what we're doing. It's just like any other crop. 
only way more versatile. I'm sorry. I had to say. No, that. you're fine. It's <laughs> so it's been awesome to work with the, the state of Kansas, you know, the Kansas Department of Commerce. They're extremely supportive of what we're doing. Great Bend and the economic development part of, you know, they're cheering us on because we're bringing people into our community. We're starting new businesses, you know, like we're rural agriculture is dying. That's there's no easy way to put that. Family farms are going to the wayside. Um, small communities, small communities are slowly dying, and so having a revitalizing effort, bringing people to the community, like that, is so critical for us. Um, and that's something that we really promote. Everything we try to do, we try to do as local as possible. just so fantastic to hear all of this and and rural development is everything reviving the american farm reviving rural agriculture is everything and and of course we want hemp to be that crop despite all of the growing pains despite the fact that hemp ain't easy despite the fact that it has decades and decades of social engineering taboo attached to it we persevere uh, every single day and move forward. Uh, the vision that I have dedicated my entire life to um, is sitting here unfolding before my very eyes. Can you imagine if when I was a 21-year-old girl, you know, somebody told me, don't bother, give up. And actually, the reality is they did several times over, but I, thank goodness, didn't listen and, and just felt convicted in this vision. And I'm watching it happen. And it's everybody working together that is making it happen. Now, as you say, fire marshal, sister, let me ask you, have you done a hempcrete fire test for him yet? Or at least shown him one on? Yeah. The- yeah. We, he must have we, freaked out because that's how we really, hempcrete is a major, um, of all of the products of hemp, hempcrete is, it will always be and is and has been my very favorite uh, product. And I do training for uh, hemp technologies. And so mm-hmm. when these fire marshals find, and hemp technologies built that very first fully permitted hempcrete home uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, or on the mountain for the mayor of Asheville. And it was that fire marshal. Of course, it's easy to get things permitted when you're building for the mayor, let's face it. But when that fire marshal saw that it was non-combustible, I mean, it changes everything. And folks who are doing hempcrete structures right now, as you know, since there is not international ratings as a building material for it, it makes everyone by default an advocate in their region or their municipality's building and planning district. And we always advise go right to the fire marshal first and see if you can impress the heck out of that fire marshal with a combustion test. What did he say when you did it for him or when you showed him? You know, he just, he wanted to learn more. And, you know, to even expand upon the fire marshal, we're reaching out and thinking even further down the line, think insurance companies. Like you can make all these great structures, but if you can't get them insured, I'm not putting it in my house. Like I, if my house, something happens, I want insurance. And so we're having these conversations and we're getting their ear. You know, Farm Bureau came out with their big, big wigs and toured our facility, wanting to learn more about it. You know, wanting to see about the fire combustibility, wanting to know about IR ratings and things like that. And that's what keeps me moving forward because we're starting to see the dominoes fall. We're starting to, you know, people have been listening, but they're actually taking action now. You know, they're they're bringing their bosses out. They're they're submitting these proposals to heads of companies and banks and you know people that 
we, you know, give us a thumbs up, but didn't want to even like come near us three years ago are now getting in line to work with us. And that's, that's a cool feeling. That's the perseverance. That's exactly what I am talking about. It's a dream come true. And I, I tell folks I often speak at universities or colleges and say, please dream big. Do not stifle your dreams because so many of my dreams have already come true. I, I already am, am looking at the unfolding of, of the reemergence of this crop across our great nation and, in fact, across the whole world. And, uh, you know, and I have to dream bigger dreams, bigger dreams because they, they're happening and it's just so fantastic. It's because of people like you, Melissa and Aaron and Richard Baldwin, your husband and brother-in-law really, and it's the grit of farmers. I mean, and that's the other thing is that none of this is happening without the farmers. If we don't get seeds in the ground, none of this vision is coming true. And just the absolute grit, um, and integrity and authenticity of, of the American farmer, um, by and large, is just really, these are the heroes and the heroines, uh, you folks who are really making this happen. Um, Well, and a lot of people don't realize, you know, you, you hear all these demonization of agriculture. Well, the world turns because of what we do. You know, you want makeup on your face? That's agriculture. Like, everything you touch in a day has probably been at one point, an agricultural commodity. And people are so disconnected from that that they don't even realize what we're doing for society. And, you know, there's a place for everyone, and this is a little different than him, but like GMO crops or GM crops. And people talk about organic and things like, there's room for everybody because we can't have only certified organic crops in the United States People are going to be hungry and they're going to be mad that a loaf of bread is going to be $11 because you just simply can't produce the volume that you need to feed the world. And so there's a place for everybody in ag like that. We are in an agricultural revolution that is absolutely, I think, finding its way towards harmony with the planet, whatever that looks like. That's the trajectory that we are on, despite what we may hear or see on the news and in society every single day. And, and you know, really to just nail down what you just said previously about agriculture, our entire survival, you know, depending on it, makeup, absolutely. Food, oh my goodness, as we often say in this show, if it weren't for rainfall on the top six inches of soil, we would all die. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how healthy you are. Without rainfall on the top six inches of soil, we're all dead. We're gone. So it is just, uh, it's just so tremendously important. Tell us a little bit about the facility itself. If you could just sort of run down what happens when you get the stock, where it goes, and and what lines you have so far. What happens uh, when a stock will come into your facility? Okay, so we work with farmers now, and it needs to come in in round bales because that's how Formation Ag's machine is set. It's self-fed to basically unwind a round bale through our machine. Once it comes in and it's dry and it's good to go, it gets loaded into the unwinder and basically slowly unwinds and creates a mat. And this mat is going to go through a series of rollers with different like tensile strengths and things like that, that are going to apply different amounts of pressure and basically strip that bast from your herd. From there, your herd's going to drop and it's going to go through a conveyor to another cleaner and then again to a size and sorter of a different conveyor. 
um, and then the fiber is actually going to be spit out onto a shaker table. So any, it kind of has a rocking motion with a slap at the end, like just to kind of give you a visualization. And that's going to knock any remaining herd that the rollers didn't get. Um, what we're learning through this process is, you know, having an extremely dry bale is critical. Um, we are, there's definitely some learning curves for our humidity levels and things that we have here that Formation Ag doesn't experience in Monta Vista, Colorado. So there was some learning curves there, uh, but we're, we're getting it figured out. It's, it's a, it's a learning process. It's a learning process. And just thank you for your tenacity and, and, you know, willingness to go through it and learn it. I, I've, I speak constantly with uh, Greg Wilson of, of Hempwood. And, mm -hmm. you know, he says to me, I couldn't figure out in the beginning, I would talk to people and they would say, thank you. Thank you for doing this. And he said, and I, I would just wondered what the heck they're talking about. But after all the hard lessons, he has come to realize why people thank him so profusely. First guy in, oh my goodness, what you're going to learn. First folks in, in Kansas. I mean, first of all, you're one of the first folks in, in decortication and fiber processing at all in the United States, as you well know, but certainly First one's in Kansas, so thank you for, for learning these lessons, which can be difficult, which can be expensive, which can be discouraging. It's funny that you say that because it really didn't hit me. Like Aaron, Richard, and I, we've really just had our head down and we've been grinding, you know, and we take the lumps and we learn from them. I'm super active on our social media page because people just want to follow our journey. I'm very transparent about the good days, the hard days, whatever, and... <sighs> I didn't realize everything that we were accomplishing until probably about a month ago when people from magazines and TV shows and all these things. And I'm like, why us? Like, we're just working, you know, like we're just doing what we do. And then it was interesting to like relive the last three years and telling our story. And I'm like, wow, like we are doing something here. We are leaders and it's a cool feeling. Oh, and I hope you drink it in, especially on those hard days, lady. And and it's the same thing here. I'm working 12 and 14 hours a day. I'm not. I don't get up every day and say, "Gee, what wonderful thing can I do for the hemp movement?" Hemp is frankly, I've got to find another another word for it. But it's a it's a slave driving plant. I mean, the the, the hemp bosses me around. I've been bossing me around for 30 years, and it bosses me around every day. And I just do what it says. Um, and uh, and and then you know you get these a lifetime achievement award or whatever. And what have I, what have I achieved? I've just been slaving away because that's what I'm, I'm supposed to do. And, uh, and it is the most wonderful, rewarding, fulfilling work in the world. Uh, I had just, the joy that I get of hemp, um, it's just, I can't express it in words. It is, it lights me up. It gives me, other than my own children, um, my own two wonderful sons, it's hemp for me. Hemp is the love of my life. Um, and so, of course, what, and I wanted to just make sure that the listeners knew, and, and I so appreciate the way you truly explained it for them, these rollers at the beginning of that process when you're processing the hemp, of course, is decortication. You're well familiar with that term. Uh, and that is the term, listeners, of the decortication of separating the outer bark, the bast fiber, from the inner woody core. Uh, and then, so you folks are then collecting the hemp, the herd, as it were. Are you doing anything at all with the bast right now or just trying to keep it for now or... I know because I didn't know if you have, as you may know, uh, 
Maddie Mead, I'm going to see here, Hepatecture, they're opening up in Idaho, of course, for non, I believe it's non-woven mats or insulation. Uh, are you doing anything with the Bass Fiber right now? We are. We've got some people that are very interested. The hard thing right now is, you know, just generally speaking, 75% is bass, or I mean, 25% is bass, 75% is herd. So in order to fulfill these large manufacturing orders, you got to accrue a lot of bass, you know, because it's not that heavy of a substance. So um, we have a baler right now and we're just bailing everything up and we've got orders that we're just kind of waiting till we meet that demand, that weight demand and get it to them. Wow. This, I really, I mean, this is just so fascinating for me because we are really, I'm sitting here having this conversation you with, with you, Melissa, and we're, we're having a conversation about what it is really taking. I mean, I have goosebumps from head to toe right now of what it, this is the grit. This is what it, you know, <laughs> If you see that hemp shirt, that rare hemp shirt that you can buy online or from some various, you know, retailers here, you know, what it took. It took thousands and hundreds of thousands of acres of hemp and then separating that bass from that herd and collecting that bass and then getting it to the manufacturing facility. And frankly, processing it, oftentimes you can't just take some, the raw bass, as you well know, to the manufacturer. There's certainly, if it's for textiles, far more further processing uh, before it gets there. And, and so... I'm just sitting here listening to basically in real time what is happening in the hemp movement in the United States via South Bend Industrial Hemp in Kansas, which is we're decorticating it, we're collecting it, and as soon as we get enough, we'll try to meet our first order. Keep growing it. Let's keep moving. Oh, my goodness. One foot in front of the other. You guys are phenomenal, Melissa. Phenomenal. Thank you. Just incredible to be doing uh, these things. And are, do you have you learned um, or met any of the folks at IND Hemp yet? Oh, yeah. We love talking to them. I met them. I got to go to the Nebraska show. Corbett let me tag around, tag along and hang out in the booth and like talk to customers and stuff. Um, awesome! Because I, I, I know what I'm talking about, you know, like I'm in the combine. I'm in like I'm in the, the heat of it. And so communicating with these farmers and things like that, like I love sharing our story and I can do it in a way that I can talk farmer for lack of better words, you know. And so anyway, I met farmers at the Nebraska Ag Show, Iowa Ag Show. Just it's been it's been fun. And as you well know, the Elliott family, IND Hemp, I couldn't have met a more collaborative group of people. I mean, they oh, are definitely. so wanting to build the, the hemp industry, the hemp community. And that's another thing that I want all of hemp and, and really all forms of cannabis. But, you know, this is about cooperation. This is where we are at, everybody. It's time to cooperate. Mankind's only choice of survival is through cooperation. And it's only through cooperation. We talk about, you know, using the existing equipment that we have, but there are going to be times as as innovation moves on and as, as farmers maybe decide they do want to take a little bit of risk and expand and there may be some equipment sharing. The bottom line is cooperation uh, is, is what this plant is all about. And I just love that you... Yeah, we see that a lot. Like think the cotton industry. You know, no, not every farmer has a million dollar cotton baler. And so it gets customed out, you know, and that could be the way that the hemp industry is moving. I wouldn't be opposed to that. But right now we're just making it 
we're making it work with what we got. So, Amen. Absolutely. Amen. M most definitely. And you are making it work um, and learning your lessons along the way. Um, Miss Melissa, is there anything that you, that I, a question that you wish I'd asked that, that I didn't ask or something that you want to make sure uh, that the listeners hear from you as we, as we come to the end of our time? And I sure can't wait to have you back on again. I know this went so fast. I think my biggest advice from what I've learned through the last three years and things like that, you know, people come to us and they want to be involved in the hemp industry and maybe they've never grown before. Like, this is the craziest part to me. People that have never been in farming ever in their life, they're like, I'm going to farm hemp. And I'm like, okay, that's a, that's a big learning curve. Like I'm having a learning curve and I've been in agriculture my whole life. So find your niche. You know, I tell people you can be in a mile wide and an inch deep, or you can really find your passion and go a mile deep and an inch wide, you know, find the part of the hemp that lights you on fire. And if that is growing, great. If that's manufacturing, pursue it. If that's education, get after it. You know, like you don't have to be a farmer to be involved in this. And so, and so find your area and just chase it. Amen to that. What is your passion? Hemp can fill it. Absolutely. Such fantastic advice. Boy, are we going to be watching South Bend Industrial <laughs> Hemp. I am rooting you on. I am cheering you on. I'm sending second and third wins, Melissa. Thank you for everything that you and your partners, your husband uh, and brother-in-law, Aaron and Richard, do for the hemp industries, for the hemp community, and especially for the farmers. Melissa, thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Barons today. Now I have goosebumps. This was just so much fun. Thank you. <laughs> we'll have you on again soon, sister. Until that time, go hemp. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network. Network.